Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail... Labour is forging ahead with the most radical overhaul of Labour laws in decades, unveiling details of its promised fair pay agreements. The group headed by former Prime Minister Jim Bolger has released a report sending out ways to lift wages and improve working conditions. Arguably the biggest shift in industrial relations in 30 years. And depending on your perspective, it's either... We just don't see the need for them. This is a deliberate move to force unionism back onto New Zealanders. That could force those businesses out of business. Or... Fair pay agreements are about setting standard conditions across those industries so that worker terms and conditions don't get driven down in those competitive sectors. So what's actually happening here? Is this unionisation by stealth or a dramatic move aimed at stemming years of sluggish wage growth? What would it mean for your current collective agreement, if you have one? And how do we square a massive re-empowerment of unions with an effective wage freeze in the public sector? Fair pay agreements have been on the government's radar for the best part of four years. But last week, Workplace Relations and Safety Minister Michael Wood filled in some of the blanks as to how they'll actually work. Fair pay agreements in general are a a really big seismic shift. Henry Cook is Stuff's chief political reporter. Not quite akin to how much of a shift we saw in the late 80s, early 90s, when kind of Labour and National came together to both kill the union movement as it existed before then. But it is, it is a really big deal. What I would say, I guess, about it being the announcement being a bit lost last week and everything else that was going on is, is, is this isn't the first we've heard of fair pay agreements mm. that we nowhere near the last we've heard of it. I mean, we still don't even have a bill to look at and we've been talking about this since before 2017. Employers are likening Labour's new workplace policy to the old national awards system which caused widespread strikes in the 1970s and 80s. The party is proposing fair pay agreements in which minimum pay and working conditions would be negotiated across an industry rather than with individual companies. Throughout the 20th century, New Zealand was one of the most unionised countries in the world, peaking at around about 45% of the paid workforce in the late 80s. But in the early 90s, membership rates plummeted. These days they hover at around 20%. The main reason it drops in the early 90s is the Employment Contracts Act, which was a, a national government thing which ended compulsory union membership. So basically... Back in the day, uh, if you were a worker in a certain sector, you were a member of a union. There wasn't really a choice on that. Uh, That was ended in in 991 with the Employment Contracts Act. But it is fair to say that that the Employment Contracts Act actually kind of finished the job that Labour had started when in government. They had done the Labour Relations Act in 1987, which got rid of compulsory arbitration, uh, which basically forces the two sides to the table on these things, which had existed for, for decades in New Zealand. Those two things together changed the entire way that people were employed in New Zealand. Basically, there was a lot of collective agreements that all got converted to individual agreements all at once. And the default for most workers across New Zealand is now that when you when you get a job, you sign up to the individual employment agreement, not a collective agreement. Unions had to stand on their own two feet and kind of explain why what they offered was, was so much better than an individual employment contract, and clearly a lot of people thought they did offer enough. The unions would say that also all their tools kind of got taken away from them, um, so they stopped being able to offer much more than an individual employment agreement would, would, you know, would allow. We have to vote on Burns' new contract. It's basically the same deal, except we get a free keg of beer for our meeting. Yay! And in exchange for that, 
We have to give up our dental plan. So long, dental plan! Tell me about this idea in plain English. What is its intention and how might it work? So the intention of fair pay agreements is, uh, in Labour's words, basically set a floor under conditions and pay across an industry. This wouldn't be for all industries in, in their eyes, but the idea is basically you shouldn't be able to dramatically undercut your competitors if you're a business on labour costs. You should you should be able you should be you know undercutting them on efficiencies, or you should be offering a better service. You shouldn't be able to just go down and say, look, I can offer you this cleaning contract for ten thousand dollars less because I'm going to pay my workers fifty cents less an hour, and they're going to have less um, you know less breaks. But they don't see that as a as a fair set of affairs, and they want to fix that. The way it does that is by basically allowing either ten percent of all workers in a industry or a thousand workers of any industry to go to the Employment Relations Authority and say that they want to start a fair pay agreement kind of process. After that, the union argues on behalf of the workers, even if the workers aren't members of the union, with a peak body who represents the industry. So someone like Business NZ or maybe Federated Farmers, if you're talking to you know a lot of farmers, who, who you know can represent the industry of you know, the employers on the other side. They have a um, you know basically a bargaining round as if they were bargaining a collective agreement between you know one one set of workers and one employer, mm-hmm. and every FPA must include just, you know base wages, hours of work, overtime, and penalty rates. And then they also have to discuss some other things like redundancy and leave requirements, health and safety, skills and training. But those only have to be discussed. It's really the the very base level things that actually have to have some kind of agreement: wages, hours of work, overtime, penalty rates. And then that goes out for ratification. Both the employers and the employees get to vote on, on that ratification. And if an agreement can't be reached twice, then the Employment Relations Authority steps in and sets the terms themselves. So that's that's the key the key thing there is that the employers can't walk away from the table anymore. They would be compulsorily, you know, have to have to have some kind of um, agreement because the ERA could force them into it. You turn out those pockets. Atoms. One, two, three, four. Six of them. Take him away. You can't treat the working man this way. One day we'll form a union and get the fair and equitable treatment we deserve. Then we'll go too far and get corrupt and shiftless. So employees in an industry can initiate an FPA if they meet, um, if it's either 1,000 employees in their industry or 10% of the workforce. Yes, or there's also something called a public interest test. Yeah. It's kind of unclear what that will, how that will look in, in practice, but it seems like basically you can also apply to the government and say, look, we don't meet either of those things, but uh, we, need, we need it because clearly this industry has you know, really unfair pay, pay and agree, um, working conditions. Contractors are not currently covered um, by the FPAs, but the government is keen to eventually get contractors in. Uh, so, so if you're if you're kind of a dependent contractor, you know you, you, you're hired as a contractor as something like an Uber driver, but you kind of are treated as, for all intents and purposes, an employee. Uh, the government is keen to get FPAs to cover you eventually, but at this point, um, contractors are not covered. It's kind of too too complicated. Okay, and so once an FPA has been initiated, the responsibility for negotiating that goes from the workers to a union. Uh, yep. And the union will negotiate that with a business body, which will represent the interests of the employers. And once an FPA has been initiated, um, there must be a conclusion, whether it's between those two parties or whether the ERA steps in and sorts it out on their behalf. 
Yeah, there's no, there is no way you can walk away with no agreement of some sort. When you say a thousand employees or ten percent of of the workers in an industry have to ask the ERA for this to happen, do we know anything about what the conditions around that might have to be? Would you, for example, need to be a member of a union? How would the overall workforce of an industry be figured out, or is that the sort of stuff that needs to get established? So you would not need to be a member of a union. That's really key. Labour are quite keen to not have this be seen as kind of a um, a simple way for union membership to get up. And also I think the unions would, would realise that that kind of step would mean in some of these industries with very low unionisation rates, they would never really get that 1,000 workers okay. or 10%. In terms of deciding this, you know, what, what, what is a workforce, you know, the ARA would kind of have some level of dis, um, discretion over that. But clearly that is kind of ripe for discussion. I mean, let's say you're talking about journalists. Say you try to do an FPA for journalists. Okay. Do you include all Radio New Zealand, you know, sound technicians with that? Or do you just include? define folks like yourself, Emil. The aim is really more on the very, uh, very, very low wage areas of the economy, cleaners, security guards, that kind of things, especially where there's kind of a competitive tendering process mm. and that means that uh, a, lot of, a lot of smaller outfits kind of compete on price of each other and kind of drive down pay conditions as the government sees it. Uh, probably a good example would be security staff. So... Security staff, it's a pretty it's a pretty standard job. Say the union who represents security staff, which I think is first union, get together a thousand workers, um, which may or may not be ten percent, I'm not sure, probably less than ten percent, of the workforce. They go to the ARA, they say, Look, this is a dangerous job at times, you work overnight and all these things, we should be able to set a a floor for, for wages and conditions. The ARA says sure, so they start they start doing it. Um, the various security agencies security card companies probably get someone from Business NZ or some other peak body to negotiate on their behalf. They both get given, uh, I think, $50,000 each. Each side gets $50,000 in order to do this. They go off, they discuss things like pay and overtime, penalty rates, things like that, rates for working on Sunday, that kind of thing. And they either come to an agreement or they don't. That goes out for ratification ratifications reached when the agreement is, is set in law and from there it, it kind of applies per two to maybe three years before it gets renegotiated kind of like a collective agreement then on top of that if workers who are unionized in that area still want to do a collective agreement on top of that they are welcome to this is a base level so if they want to do something else on top of it that's that's totally allowed they can do it they can get me a dental plan or whatever they want um and a collective agreement if you know under the normal collective agreement process yeah okay so i was interested by this in carrying on with the security guard example that you were talking about. The level of danger that you might face as a security guard could very much be influenced by where in the country you are working. For example, you know, someone who's working in Auckland's city centre and working the night shift there might justifiably be able to claim that they are in more danger or whatever than someone who's working, um, I don't know, in Littleton or, you know, Port Chalmers down in Dunedin and things like that. So would there be room in these agreements, do you know, for differences of that ilk or in terms of where in the country you live, for example? I don't know if you've been on the main streets of Littleton recently. <laughs> no, um, I, I would say um, I, so, so there is definitely regional differences are allowed. The paper specifically references regional differences as being um, allowed. So I, I think the, the key one to think about there is probably less around something like danger and more around something like just, just how much the cost of living is. Yep. Obviously, uh, the cost of living in, in Auckland is dramatically higher than the cost of living in Invercargill, and, and these FPAs would, would be able to recognise that You know, pay needs to basically be higher in Auckland just so people can make rent. You've mentioned collective agreements a couple of times. How are these actually different from collective agreements? So collective agreements in in New Zealand generally are between one employer 
and a, a group of uh, employees. So even if your collective agreement might be very similar to another collective agreement, as they often are um, kind of in your industry, they are agreed between that one employer and the group of employees. Also, um, during the agreement negotiations, both sides can kind of walk off. Mm-hmm. Um, employees can walk off and have a, and strike, mm-hmm. and employers can can walk off and lock people out or just refuse to refuse to you know engage in the collective agreement negotiations. Under FPAs, uh, neither side can really do that. As I've said, the employers can't walk out because then the EPA will just the RA at least will will just decide on what the terms are. Mm-hmm. And the employees are actually prohibited from striking during negotiations of an EPA. The Huranui District Council's issued lockout notices to its striking utilities officers, its water and wastewater workers, until they sign a new agreement. Thousands of general practice nurses are striking around the country today as they bid for equal pay with hospital colleagues. It was a noisy wake-up call for a few Wellington residents this morning as bus drivers on strike started the picket line well before sunrise in one of the capital's suburbs. March madness, Auckland's annual period of traffic mayhem looks set to start early due to industrial action by train staff. This is a real standoff between the employer and the workers. I mean, just to clarify this, so while the unions would be negotiating this on behalf of workers, you wouldn't have to be a member of a union to enjoy the benefits that might be settled upon in negotiations? No, and this is one of the quite interesting things here, actually. Union, union um, membership rates are, are you know, way, way, way down on their, on their peaks. And this doesn't really do anything to encourage people to actually join a union. In fact, the only thing that you can negotiate as a union to give union members that you don't give other union members is enough money that they can pay their union dues back. So you can basically make union membership free. Hmm. But there's there's no you know there's no requirement that people who are covered by this join unions. There's, there's I mean what some people call the free rider problem here with that. But what it does do is give unions a huge institutional role. First, they, they get $50,000 for negotiating, which is, is a kind of giant amount of money, but it is some money. Mm. But they also get kind of embedded into the legislation as the key you know, actor for workers mm. again. So while they might not suddenly see their you know, membership roles skyrocket, they do become much more embedded into kind of regular New Zealand life as the key advocate for workers, which I think a lot you, know, you can see why the unions are very happy with this. They kind of return to that role. Because, I mean, in a sense, if you are an industry and a union is negotiating on your behalf but you're not a member of that union, like you're not a member but you also kind of are a member at the same (laughs) same time, right? Yeah, and you're still you still get to vote on the ratification. So you still you you kinda get this, you know, guest pass to the union where you get to to help decide on, on what the union agrees to accept as as a representation of you, the employee, without having to join. What would the appeal of being part of a union be any more? Well you could still get a collective agreement that was more on top of that. A lot of people like the fact that their collective agreements give them, say, another week of leave, uh-huh. um, which is something that's in, in you know, I'd say many journalists, many journalism collective agreements, um, or it might give them things like uh, healthcare coverage or, or, a, or a dental plan under COVID substance. So th- there is, there could still be benefits from your collective agreement outside of that. And you could also, I mean, people might also decide that, hey, this union's been, been doing a lot on my behalf, I want to help them out, and my dues will actually be paid back out of my collective agreement, out of my FPA anyway. So it's kind of a win-win here. Naturally, employers aren't, well, don't seem to be particularly happy with this. Employers don't like them, don't want them, and don't think they're needed. Employers are required to come to the table 
If any union anywhere in the country, in any industry or sector, can meet the initiation threshold. So employers are going to go through an incredible period of uncertainty. What are their main objections to this? Employers basically argue that this takes away their flexibility to operate their businesses. They, they, they no longer, you know, much of the control of how they operate their businesses, how they hire people, and that control is being taken away from them and set, um, essentially by government dictate, uh, as they see it. Uh, they argue that this will lead to higher wages, which will lead to them being able to hire less people, um, and to prices going up. Um, so that they argue that it could have a you know, detrimental effect on employment. Um, and could have a detrimental effect on kind of overall inflation, as well as just the kind of a general, seeing, seeing it as a general political attack on their freedom as businesses to operate competitively. Is this an idea that is kind of unique to New Zealand, or are there similar things overseas which might be a model for what we're doing here? No, it's very closely um, modelled on Australia's uh, modern award system which was introduced by, by their Labour government in, I think, 2009, probably kind of set up in 2010. Both Labour parties have both, you know, long looked across the ditch for inspiration, and, and this is very clearly one where they kind of openly admit that they basically, like the Australian model, would have adopted it to some level to New Zealand. Hmm. And do we know anything about how successful... Well, I don't know whether successful would be the right word there. What the effects of the Australian legislation have been in the, in the 12 years since? There are kind of two things to separate out here. One, politically, um, they have obviously stayed. Uh, you know, Labour have not been in power in Australia for a long time, mm-hmm. but the Liberal government has not gotten rid of the modern award system, um, which suggests to you that they have some kind of political longevity built in. While over here, National are, are pledging to repeal FBAs if they are elected, it'll be interesting to see what would actually happen if they were kind of set in by the time National next in government. Mm-hmm. Uh, separately, what you know, what's happened to workers now? Generally, Australian workers um, do get paid more and do get better conditions on a very kind of generalised basis. Mm. But whether you can give credit entirely to the modern award system for that is, is I'd say, a lot more contested. I mean, Australia has also had a you know a mineral boom, mm. and it, has, it just has a very different economy than New Zealand. So it's, it's not quite as simple. I think it's just saying definitely yes. We've talked a little bit about the business reaction to this. What's the political reaction? So National has pledged to repeal this if they are elected in the next election. I think I heard David Seymour calling this you know kind of. This is a deliberate move uh, to tilt the playing field and force unionism back onto New Zealanders by ensuring only 10% of workers in a workplace can force a mandatory multi-employer collective agreement on the whole country. Did they kind of have a point with that a little bit? Oh, there's a very key kind of philosophical and political question here that, that different people from across, you know, income groups and different political sectors and stuff have a different take on here, which is, you know, well articulated um, by National in terms of uh, freedom of association. I mean, there, there are people who think, no, I don't want anyone else negotiating my employment terms on my behalf. Mm. I can I can do that myself. I'd rather be able to, to contract this all myself. Um, I don't want to just be part of kind of the lump and mess of employees. This bill does not respect that right. Compulsory unionism probably takes it a little bit far just because you don't have to be a member of a union, a union but it is kind of compulsorily unions will negotiate on your behalf. Uh, I guess what I would say there is that it's not going to be 100% of workers covered immediately. The government's only going to fund uh, four of these different kind of negotiations each year, and um, they don't even know if they'll have four, you know, four groups coming to them every year. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not like we're going to turn on a switch and suddenly everyone in New Zealand is going to have their pay negotiated by a union. But are you suggesting that David Seymour is possibly hyperbolising here, Henry? 
Yeah, I mean that's his job. He's a politician. It's, it's, it's um, you know, Labour sees its existence as some of the Labour Party at least do see, see themselves as the political wing of a trade union movement, mm. and act do not act a national. <laughs> I would say the reference to Labour's maybe roots, historical roots, there is quite interesting because I, I guess a recent-ish criticism of Labour is you know that it perhaps has departed from those kind of working class roots of the party and become sort of kombucha swelling hemp pant wearing. Uh, you know, is this a bit of a sort of return to the to the roots of the party, or at least appealing to people with those sorts of sensibilities? Do you think it was definitely a return to, to red meat labour stuff? It's about working people and how much money they make and whether they get you know how they get time off and stuff. This is the kind of stuff labour see, see as their as their core identity as a party. Many in the party do, and yeah, it is a way a bit from the more kind of higher income earner urbane you know issues around something like the environment it's, it's much more meat and potatoes how much money do you take home every day am i over overreaching here or is there some irony to the fact that this was announced the day after a i mean it's been described as a pay freeze the government's not too happy with that characterization but you know big things happened in the area of public service wages and uh, a large proportion of people in the public service essentially having their wages frozen for the next three years is there a degree of irony to that Yes, I mean the timing was quite quite a bit of a whiplash for some people. I think there was definitely a um, you know Wednesday uh, Wednesday effective pay freeze as I describe it now. Um, I think it is a pay freeze basically, yeah. and and which obviously a lot of people on the left saw as a austerity from a Labour government when the books were looking pretty good, unneeded austerity, uh, and then on Friday you know Minister Wood comes out with something which. Uh, is probably one of the more left-wing policies that any government in New Zealand has, has you know, instituted for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, quite a whiplash. But I, I guess what, what I was saying is that you know this this was one step in the long process of FPAs. There's not going to be a bill until November. We're going to be talking about and there's going to be fights about FPAs for at least for next year. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Flo Wilson and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Stuff's Henry Cook. Ka kite anō. Lisa needs braces. Dental plan. Lisa needs braces. Dental plan. Lisa needs braces.